0: Greetings, Ray's community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Magnus Johnson, who serves as Senior Associate Vice President of Presidential and University Philanthropy at Virginia Commonwealth University. That really rolls off the tongue. I believe the title is 33 Syllables. Welcome, Magnus.
1: Well, thank you, Brent. I have to admit, I sometimes hand my business card to donors and they they struggle with it, but uh,
0: thank you. Well, it is a very unique title. I have now hosted over 160 episodes, and you're the first person with this title, and I think there's some specific words that we're going to want to dive into as we learn more about your uh, professional focus and journey. But before we do that, I love learning more about our guests, and you mentioned uh, before we hit go on the recording that you've listened to uh, several episodes of the podcast previously, so you know where I'm going with this, but I'd love to know more about your own higher education journey. Take me back to high school. Who is that Magnus? Where was he? And what led you to James Madison University?
1: Well, I appreciate the question, Brent. Um, When I was in high school, I wanted to be the next Bob Costas. I actually went to a high school that had a communications program and radio program. So I really watched sports and TV events and baseball in particular and aspired. What was
0: that? What was that high school? I grew up actually in Sacramento, California. Sacramento, California wanting to be the next Bob Costas. That is maybe as specific of a career aspiration as anyone who I've hosted on this podcast.
1: Exactly. And and that's who I thought I was going to be as I did more research on a radio career and TV career. I realized that was going to be a bit more competitive than I thought. So As I went into college, I decided instead to pursue a career in public administration and nonprofit management. And really, we all have these moments in our career where something happens. And I was required to do an internship before my senior year. And I did it with a local United Way in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I went to school with James Madison. And at that point, uh, my junior year, I saw what development was about. They had asked me to do a needs assessment survey, but I observed the whole concept of philanthropy and people wanting to invest in their community. And I was very taken by it even before I graduated.
0: Well, I've got to find out more just about what led you from Sacramento to Harrisburg. According to LinkedIn, there are six JMU alumni who live in Sacramento right now. So not exactly a, a, a strong pipeline. So what was your story?
1: Well, I had a parent that had a job transfer to the East Coast. And as I did some research, I recognized in Virginia, there were a lot of really good schools. And I really zeroed in on GMU as a school I wanted to go to, um, being in a rural community, but still dynamic.
0: And um, and it, it was an amazing choice for me. So when you think about college, uh, what were some of the favorite experiences? What was your level of engagement on campus? Did you even know? Because I know your story, which you're about to tell, is more nonprofit pivoting over to uh, the higher ed advancement sector. Did you have an appreciation for the concept of advancement while you were at JMU? I think
1: really being a public administration undergrad and political science minor, you really get exposed to the whole concept of public policy. And then you get this appreciation that philanthropy is very much driven by public policy. And then when I did this internship, a lot of stars started to align for me. And that as I started contemplating a career after graduation and pursuing a career in nonprofit management and potentially philanthropy really was something I started to gain clarity on as I got closer to graduation. So it was, it was really, as I reflect on it, just something I'm not sure I fully appreciated in the moment, but when I look back on it, it it's really one of the greatest things that ever happened to me.
0: So you walk into the United Way internship, and just tell me about it. What was a day in the life? What were you focused on? What was the impact that United Way was trying to have in the local community?
1: And You have to picture this. This is a small office in downtown Harrisonburg, Virginia. This is a city of about 30,000 people. I'm this 21-year-old going to an internship, shadowing an executive director that is doing a little bit of everything, interacting with local CEOs, managing a board, organizing a community campaign that runs in that community each fall, and, and being an intern and being able to observe that on a day-to-day basis um, was really something that was remarkable. And so I think after I left that internship, it was really the fork in the road for me. I, I think as I really approached that senior year and starting to pursue opportunities after graduation, it may not have been philanthropy per se, but I knew it was the nonprofit sector and a community focused career.
0: And then that ultimately led to an opportunity to join that same United Way, correct?
1: Yeah, I, I initially had a job making collection calls, which actually was another job and career of sorts. Career Tell me
0: about, about making collections. I mean, we've had plenty of phone callers, which in a certain sense is kind of like making collections, but a slightly different dynamic, I imagine.
1: It really was one of the jobs that I did for about six months after graduation, where you're making 28 calls an hour on an auto dialer, or they'll assign you to another cubicle where you're making manual calls with stacks of phone books. This is 1994, and looking up names and numbers, and that first 10 or 20 seconds of each call you're making, you have to get that caller's attention and keep them on the line and end that call, and your metric was promised to pay. And so when I think of some of the skill sets I learned from that, and then later being in the development world, having the secure visits, that first 10 to 20 seconds on the phone is so critical. And I learned that making collection calls.
0: Any particularly uh, poignant collection calls you remember that went longer or 10, than 10 or 20 seconds?
1: It was interesting because being on the East Coast here in Richmond, um, we were always calling people on the West Coast. So you had mentioned my history in Sacramento. I just remember some of the calls where I would call people on Sacramento from the East Coast. And in some cases, I would recognize their st- the street they're living on and say, hey, hey I, I know exactly where you live. I, I don't know that my comment was always welcomed by uh, the people
0: I was calling, but some of those calls certainly resonate. Love it. So tell me about the United Way experience. As you move from intern to full-time professional, you had a really long run there um you know in a sector where i think tenure is a hot topic and you know how quickly uh you know folks might turn over on average you had an almost nine-year run uh which which must have meant that it was a really uh, fulfilling and, and rewarding experience It was. And I I think one of the things you really gain working in the
1: nonprofit sector is a level of experience and exposure that you may not as quickly get in some other industries. So being there for nine years, starting as an individual contributor as a fundraiser, then supervising a team of five people, and then ultimately a team of almost 15 by the time I left when I was after my ninth year, it was really a special experience. So I think the other aspect, I've devoted my entire career here to Richmond, Virginia. So it really gave me exposure to this community that as I then took on a subsequent role after I left United Way and now being at VCU for 16 years, I've had donor relationships that have covered all three organizations that I've worked for because I've worked in one market. And for me, that's been really special.
0: It is special, but it also sort of exposes you to the you know, the intersection of nonprofits in a local community, higher ed, healthcare, United Way, Faith, other uh, types of nonprofits. And tell me about just the competitive dynamic, if you will, when you think about now having a window into some of those exact same donors, what have you learned about how they think about where that next principle or major investment could go and and it's 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 not like we're pitting one against another, but ultimately, when they think about the the pie chart of their philanthropy, they've got to make asset allocation the same way that an investor would in the you know public and private equity markets, for example. So so what have you learned just about uh, how donors think about allocating their philanthropy in a local environment like that?
1: It's a great question, Brian. And it's a question I still reflect on sometimes, having seen my career evolve in one market and through three different organizations. And I felt in this market in Richmond that I really grew up as a fundraiser, so singularly focused on the organization I was working for and as I really joined VCU and had a stronger view across the community and if you don't if you're not familiar with VCU we're right in downtown Richmond we're really the catalyst in this community for arts healthcare workforce development i really saw donors evolve with an expectation of collaboration how are we speaking to each other and i didn't sense that as much earlier in my career as i do now and donors who are challenging us to not only work across the institution but they're in some cases challenging us to work across the community in ways that we weren't being asked by 10, 15 years ago. So it's the sophistication, not only of our profession, but the sophistication of our donors has really increased. So it's the donors have challenged us to think differently and then therefore me. So I think that's been one of the things I've observed the most.
0: Tell me about UMFS. I wasn't familiar with the organization, I researched it a bit. It looks like an amazing mission. You must have seen some incredibly emotional um, stories, and and I'm guessing been a part of some really exciting impact. But what led you there? And when you think about what stands out from that experience relative to United Way, what were some of the the similarities and differences?
1: United Methodist Family Services was really a special experience. And if one is not familiar with the organization, it's focused on residential treatment, 50 kids that live on that campus, treatment, foster care. So really coming to work each day is truly inspiring and having the interaction with those residents. Now, for me in my career, it was notable in that through my nine years at United Way, I had not done a lot of individual major gift fundraising. So it was really a shift for me and often spending time in the corporate boardroom or working directly with companies to then sitting with people in their living rooms. And I was really fortunate during that time to have a mentor that had been a higher ed VP who was assigned to work with us as our campaign counsel that really started to shape uh, me as a professional and really understanding how to build a development shop from soup to nuts. Who is that? Who is that VP? I worked with a gentleman named Kevin Jocks. He had been the VP of development at UNC Wilmington and then had moved on to Capital Development Services where he still is right now. And so he was the one that really started to shape me and really challenged me to think about building a portfolio, Um, really thinking about a sequence of conversations with donors and real strategies for individuals that I had not fully
0: thought through at that point in my career. And so when you think about the United Way, prospect pool if you will it it is sort of inherently yes well-defined because it's it's local to the city and then it's ideally you you probably just rank the the biggest employers in a town and that's your ideal prospect pool is my guess uh and so just tell me about uh, any lessons learned in both working with such a defined prospect pool like the united way And then umfs i would imagine is almost the polar opposite where just about anybody could be inspired by that mission which is exciting but it also means uh, focus is going to be a lot more challenging i would guess uh, on defining the prospect pool relative to the united way
1: i think you've summed that up well you really coming from an organization where i had a very defined prospect pool i then went to an organization where there are no alumni There are no defined stakeholders other than the people that are already donors. And so it really took me out of my comfort zone in a way that as a nonprofit fundraising professional, you really become a strong storyteller and that you are engaging stakeholders that don't have a pre-existing relationship with, with you as an organization. So you are trying to compel them, stir their philanthropy in ways that is going to be very different than a United Way or even a VCU. So it really started to sharpen some of those tools for me at a mid-career standpoint, that as I went to VCU, that I was really able to engage prospects and alumni in a very different way than than maybe I thought I could. So it, it was really special.
0: Given the presence of VCU, uh, the inner uh, connection with the the city and, and, and all things in Richmond, it must've been, you must've been very familiar with the institution, but I am curious what led you to take the leap into higher ed advancement. And if you would have guessed that over 16 years later, you'd still be at VCU.
1: It was one of the things that as I had gone through my nonprofit career, I lived 10 blocks from the VCU campus and I'd really had a front row seat for its evolution in the nineties and early two thousands. And so I think during that time, I really became interested in pursuing higher ed advancement. And in a lot of ways, it mirrored my nonprofit work and that VCU being in the center of the city was influencing the quality of life. It was influencing so many things in our city in positive ways that I almost saw it as a natural evolution of my career from being a nonprofit fundraiser to really joining an organization that was serving 35% of its students who were first gen and really having a safety net hospital. So it really became something that just sort of happened.
0: And now you've had multiple roles from executive director uh, focusing on one school, School of Education, to your current role. How have the different roles shaped your understanding of philanthropy and advancement at VCU?
1: It's interesting working at a school of education. We had about 13,000 alumni when I started that role. And it really was at a point in its evolution that uh, it had not had a full-time development professional. So it really being there eight years, we're a young institution at BCU. We were formed in 1968. So we're not necessarily bound by some of the traditions where this is how it's always been done. So as my first role evolved there, it was really in a lot of ways a blank cap the canvas. There was an entrepreneurship I could bring to the role each day in building a development program and then evolving to the role that I'm in now in 2015 and now been in for eight years. I've been able to continue that and it's just really when we hire people from other institutions to join the VCU team, I think one of the things they're really compelled by is their ability to shape and build a development program here. And it's something that has just kept me here for 16 years. And it doesn't hurt that the first dean that hired me at BC was Bev Warren. She was um, my dean. She later became the provost and then became the president of Kent State and was a really an early mentor to me. And we're also an institution at BC. We've had two presidents in 35 years. So we've had a continuity of leadership that I think has really created a steadiness to the ship here that I think has also really been a good thing.
0: So, when you were working with her at in the education school, and you've got a list of thirteen thousand names that have been, it sounds like basically unstewarded. Uh, tell me about some of those conversations. What what st- stood out? If there were general themes of just people, you know, ranging from. Where have you been to, you know, I've been waiting to talk to somebody to, you know, no thanks, not interested. I mean, how, how, uh, how do you approach or what advice would you have for somebody else that is inherent to, inheriting a, a sort of prospect pool, and alumni base, if you will, that just hasn't had that constant uh, stewarding that, that you might aspire to have?
1: You know, one of the first things I did was dig into the data and really looking at the data for those 13,000 alums, then getting a wealth screening, looking at people that had repetition of giving. And I would really start to prioritize those prospects and really start to think about those that I could start to thread the dean into the conversation. One thing I'll quickly acknowledge with Bev, she's about four foot 11 and I'm about six foot six. So when we would often call on donors together, we made an impression that uh, people often didn't forget. And But we both shared that passion for the mission. And so in a lot of ways, as I kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, Brent, I had had my mentor, Kevin, really teach me how to build a portfolio, really think about the data, thinking about those potential plan giving prospects. Even checks that were coming in were hitting my desk, and I'm looking at that check to see what kind of account they wrote the check off of. So it was a lot of the things that I had learned to that point in my career that um, I was able to apply and really start to build that program. So,
0: Well, if Kevin were listening, I mean, give me the elevator pitch. What are the key themes? Like when you think about, you know, channeling some of what he taught you to, to new members uh, of your team over the years, what, what are those kind of quick points that you would highlight?
1: I always think of a major gift being taking about 18 to 24 months, five to seven in-person visits, really thinking about how are you going to deconstruct and sequence those five to seven visits? What are you going to talk about? What are you going to build to the next conversation? Who are you going to introduce in that conversation? Then, as I said, thinking about that data, who are historically your top donors? Who are those that have made annual gifts five years in a row, 10 years in a row, 15 years in a row, and starting to sequence those lists? and really measure and push yourself uh, that you are out the door consistently. How many proposals are you submitting? So our profession has definitely evolved to where we are now. Some of those things weren't being readily discussed in 2007 when I first joined VCU. And I wouldn't say as a university, we were as a decentralized development shop at that particular point, we weren't really implementing some of those consistent best practices across school to school to
0: school. And when you think about the risks of decentralization, can you be more specific about if somebody had walked around with you to mystery shop, the advancement experience in a decentralized mode, what are some of the worst practices that they would have uh, identified that you feel you've been able to address and improve by way of centralization?
1: Yeah, and and giving your listeners a little background, we've evolved from a decentralized organization when I arrived in 2007 to a hybrid organization in the mid-2010s to now one that's centralized. When I reflect back to sort of the perils of a decentralized shop, I'll be honest, when I was in a college, I would often sometimes engage donors and recognize their potential that could really be beyond the college that I was working for. And that is something that I don't think is insignificant and recognizing that we're not necessarily building institutional relationships. We are then building relationships that are then tied to a specific college or school. I would then see other colleagues, maybe board prospects and portfolios, and we would not maximize our ability with high net worth prospects. And then of course, the worst of all, and we see this in any decentralized shop because you have different protocols and prospect management systems the same donor might be called on twice in the same week by two different organizations with two different solicitations. And we were definitely seeing that. And that's not totally unusual to see in a decentralized shop.
0: So you have worked in an environment where you're making 28 calls an hour and you've got 10 to 20 seconds to make a, an impression. And now you're describing an 18 to 24 month cycle with five to seven opportunities to really get to know somebody and craft Uh, uh, proposals that align with institutional needs and donor uh, impact interest. uh, What can uh, folks that are more accustomed to the major gift or principal gift experience that you're now living in learn from making 28 calls an hour?
1: I think patience and persistence. And as I've graduated to a principal giving officer role, we're seeing gift cycles that sometimes take 36 to 48 months and sometimes longer. Um, These are complex individuals or often they're individuals that are not um, geographically located close to our campus. So I think when I reflect on what you just said, those 28 calls an hour sitting in a call center, there is a persistence and tenacity that it took me to do that and really a patience at times. So I think applying that to not only then becoming a major gift officer, but then being a principal gift officer can be extraordinary. But the the time period it takes to really sequence those conversations, involve the president, the academic leaders, and if there are multiple schools or colleges involved, the complexity and internal politics of managing that. So it, it, it's it's really principle-giving fundraising can be so incredibly rewarding, but the patience it takes, it can be very testing.
0: Magnus, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but I want to highlight, first of all, you have had incredible fundraising success across VCU uh, read that you surpassed 270 million dollars, third consecutive year uh, of of growth, record-setting levels of fundraising, uh, and at the which is clearly a testament to the fact that donors believe VCU is a great conduit for change and impact. Um, and at the same time, we've talked about this in in private conversations, and it's been very publicly shared that VCU has also had. Uh, real budget issues, and you've had to go through reorganizations. And and it is it is striking to me that there is both that sort of structural challenge, but that's not stopping. And maybe in some ways it's accelerating philanthropy. Uh, and so just tell me about, it feels like a juxtaposition there. Um, you're living it every day. How do you sort of both navigate those institutional Reorganization, you know, challenges which many of your peers listening are navigating, but also grow philanthropy at the same time.
1: It's an interesting question, and it's something I often reflect on. One of the things I often think about at BCU, our basketball team made the Final Four in 2011, and some of you may remember Shock Smart, our head coach, and it was really a sea change for our institution, and in that it engaged our alumni around the country, and it really made us think differently as an institution about our potential and where we can go. And I think there's been a unique momentum with VCU in that we were, when our president arrived in 2009, a top 100 plus research institution. Um, This last year we became a top 50 research institution. It speaks to some of the momentum that's occurring outside of development and our space, nationally and internationally, more people know about VCU. And so we are now graduating subsequent classes of alumni that have had different experiences. That when I first arrived in 2007, the maturity of our alumni have advanced to different stages, and they're those key life stages from age 55 to 75. So, I think while we've had some budget challenges, I think we also have a president that I would argue is the best, one of the best development presidents in the country. He, is, he can make up to 75 to 100 visits per year. He will do anything for development. He's made development a priority. And so we've been able to maintain, if not increase, some of our budget capabilities in development over the years, hired more people. And I think that combined with just some of the other factors and the continuity of our presidential administration, having a president who's entering his 15th year, I think has really translated in our overall
0: results. Well, this is a great segue to uh, my setup, which was your title. And the fact that there is uh, there are some specific words, including the, the presidential and university philanthropy aspect of your title. And so you were just talking about collaborating with uh, Dr. Rao. Tell me more about that experience and uh, how you frankly would apply if, if others are listening, saying, wait a second. 75 to 100 visits. You know, my president doesn't want to meet with donors or we don't have that. How how do they fit that into their schedule in addition to everything else that they're doing? Just what have you learned as that relationship and your presidential philanthropic strategies have evolved?
1: It's really been uh, remarkable to see it evolve. And foremost, it's unique to the individual. And I, I do speak to people nationally who maybe have presidents that are less engaged. And we just happen to have a president that really wants to be engaged and has a real thirst to engage with donors. So I think we've really been intentional more than ever as we think about our best prospects, where is the president inserted in that prospect plan? And when you have the equity of a president that's been with you for 14 years and has a depth in that relationship with a prospect, That's a different conversation when you sit down and start to talk about a significant gift. We've been really thoughtful about where we insert him. He's a president also that will have his own thoughts on the strategy. What if we do this? He's fearless in terms of asking and often will sometimes suggest we need to go higher. One of the things that he has said that I often and I share with my younger staff and we're sitting down in a dinner with some select owners, he'll often say, I'm here because my students can't be here. In terms of how he advocates for this institution, that's something that when the first time I heard him say that, it really made an impact on me. And it's something as I work with some of our younger development officers, I try and impart that to them. They are there to advocate for this institution in a way because our students can't. And we have to be their voice. We have to be their advocate. So with a president like Michael Rao, we're really fortunate. And as we think about some of the outcomes and results we have, it's it's been a lot of his drive and
0: vision. Tell me about what you've learned in how to get more leverage and scale from President Rao. For example, uh, in a post pandemic digital, if more digitally fluent environment, we have seen some really creative ways that, in addition to those 75 or 100 in person type visits per year, which is very high impact, but really hard to schedule. and fit in with all of the competing priorities that any college president is uh, navigating. Have you been able to creatively work him in for a quick stewardship video or a quick phone call or a quick Zoom conversation to complement some of the more high touch, uh, less scalable in-person experiences?
1: say all of the above. I, I would argue in hindsight, we could have done more with it. I would say I'm the only person in our development office that has access to his calendar. So I can really look at his calendar, anticipate meetings. Sometimes he'll have meetings that may already touch a donor and he's meeting with them on a different issue. So we're really able to maximize his development contacts. And yeah, we we try and be creative about different ways we can insert him. A university president's time is so limited and so valuable. And then you start the way, well, I've now worked with him for eight years. So there's a trust in the, our ability to set things up and set up conversations that are going to make sense for him and that we're going to prepare and sequence those conversations in a way that... I think are just he is going to trust our process so i have to recognize i'm really fortunate that that we've had a president here in his fifth year and or 15th year rather and and me working with him now eight years so
0: so during that time uh let's focus on vcu in particular any any visits stand out as just go, having gone uh, just being extremely memorable which could mean they were excellent or it could mean that they were uh you know travel stories gone wrong i mean everything in between when you just think of poignant experiences as uh, a road warrior if you will do, do any stand out
1: you know it's funny in our profession i mean i think the experiences we always remember the most are the ones on the road and when you take your leader on the road, there's a little higher margin for error or things that can go wrong or the novelty of an alumni or a donor that they're like, wow, my president is coming to have dinner with me. And so I, I sort of think of one, um, we had called on a couple in Atlanta, Georgia who had been under engaged and we spent about three or four hours with them. We then heard later through a mutual friend of that donor that they were completely... And utterly blown away that they're the alma mater, the president of their alma mater had spent three or four hours with them and completely blown away. And and sometimes I have to remind myself working in my particular role and taking this president to meet particular donors, just as if Brent, you were president, you. From your undergrad alma mater, how powerful that is, and and I think there are instances that I've now done this so long I have to remind myself this this is really cool.
0: And, yeah, I mean, let's be honest, they're they're celebrities, uh, you know, within uh, within the context of a community like yours, and you are uh, the person who is sort of always there and and uh, uh, you know leading the entourage, if you will, in some cases, and and I'm sure that you can maybe get a little desensitized to how uh, for so many of those people, it's the first time ever in their life that they're experiencing what you experience on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. So when you think about advancement, higher level uh, conversations with peers in the industry, you mentioned learning from uh, this podcast, hearing uh, folks like David Lively speak, for example, just when you think about the coming couple of years. What are some of the changes you would hope to see? Or uh, I don't know if you have any any predictions for what uh, might occur as we work to scale uh, philanthropy more broadly.
1: I think one of the tension points that I, as I think about the next several years, during the pandemic, we lost probably about 20% of our donors. And it's something we reflect on and that we have such attention in terms of increasing principal gifts increasing major gifts and this last year was the first year we've been able to reverse that trend of decline a declining donor base so as we think about the next two to five years at BCU, we're going to have to continue to really reflect of how we're building the bottom of our pyramid how are we going to reacquire some of those donors that we lost during the during the pandemic and the reality is we're not going to probably reacquire them all and so i think that's one thing i really am reflecting on Um, I think principal giving as a whole, it's sophistication and the sophistication of our donors, the questions that they ask, the collaboration they expect across both campuses of our university and schools. um, That continues to evolve in ways in this pandemic where I see questions and challenges in ways that I'm not sure I saw before the pandemic. Um, So that's something I'll be curious to see uh, as the next couple of years um,
0: go. Yeah, no, I I mean, look, there aren't a lot of industries where you've got to both work the million-dollar-plus relationship and the $10 annual supporter. I saw that over 7,000 of your donors in 2023, fiscal 23 that just ended, uh, were first-time donors. Uh, Over 30% of the total donor count was first-time. And so how do you build a strong base from a retention perspective? And then obviously, uh, over time, when you talk about a multi-year decline in the donor population, that means that you know, you're not going to reactivate everybody per se, but there's a lot of people in that pool that uh, need to be prioritized from a reactivation perspective. And so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just not easy because uh, in the end, you've got a dollar to invest. Are you going to invest it in more principal giving or are you going to invest it in the annual fund um, or something in between? And, and it's, it's, uh, uh, we might sometimes want to pretend that we'd like to do it all, but, but trade-offs are real. Yeah, exactly. So tell me about Finland. uh, For all of our listeners, why is Finland important in your life? And if you're going to give us uh, one or two recommendations on our first trip to Finland, what might that include?
1: Well, just giving you some background, both my parents uh, immigrated from Finland to the U.S. And about 40 years ago, my dad moved back to Helsinki and has never come back. So really... During my lifetime, I have visited him and my family overseas um, on an annual basis. If you've never been to Finland, it's a special place. And some of you may know, for the last five years running, it is the happiest country in the world. So I got off the plane there on my July visit, and it was 65 degrees. And we had about 20 hours of daylight. So highly recommend spending a week in Helsinki. If you can uh, manage it, going to northern Finland and uh, visiting the reindeer and what's called Rovaniemi above the Arctic Circle, I would highly recommend. And so, but really, really one of the special places in the world.
0: I love it, and yes, I have seen uh, that they've got something figured out around happiness. I also am involved, I uh, in a, in a modest way with a with a startup company called Boundless Life, and Boundless is helping create. Uh, kind of like a combination of we work meets Airbnb meets a school for digitally nomadic families which is really accelerated coming out of the pandemic so they've got uh, campuses that they're building in Sintra Portugal in Cyrus Greece in uh in Indonesia and in uh, Tuscany in Italy and they've essentially modeled this entire um, experience off of the the Finnish curriculum, the Finnish uh, educational curriculum. So in addition to happiness, uh, education is uh, pretty, pretty strong, too.
1: Yeah, without question. So for anyone who's never been the Finland added to your list, uh, it it really is a special place. But I would only say go go only go there during the summer.
0: Last question. Tell us about your ever growing vinyl music collection. What are some of the uh, the jewels of that collection?
1: Well, one of the things I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, Brent, was sort of my aspiration to be Bob Costas, but um, parallel to that, I ran a radio show at my high school called the 70s Rock Shop. So during that time, I really started building a vinyl collection. So bands like Led Zeppelin, Iron Maiden, Scorpions, ACDC, but I would probably say my Led Zeppelin catalog and some of the accompanying bootlegs I've accumulated over the years is probably the jewel of my collection,
0: Brent. I love that, and and the fact that you started uh, early in such an authentic way is is very cool. And uh, it's good to have some balance outside of the the core day job to keep keep us uh, grounded, right? Exactly. Well, just tell me about VCU. Uh, are y'all hiring? If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to connect? I know you're you're active on LinkedIn and sharing good things that are happening uh, on that platform.
1: Definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn. Right now, we're in the silent phase of the campaign. This is a campaign that will run between from twenty twenty when counting started to twenty thirty. We're going public in the next two years. We anticipate this a campaign to approach one point three billion ish. We'll we'll see what we eventually announce. So we are hiring in some select areas of our organization, and for someone who might be interested in coming to an organization that uh, we're, as I said, we're a young institution. So a lot of building. We just became a centralized shop starting July 1st. So uh, a lot of momentum and a lot of, a lot happening here at VCU.
0: Well, thank you for giving us a window into that work, Magnus. I really appreciate it. I look forward to continuing to get to know you. And in particular, I appreciate just the commentary around the collaboration with President Rao and how important uh, that can be in building momentum and and having that kind of continuity both your tenure his and others on the team is is very rare and so i'd encourage everybody to uh, that's listening to reach out to magnus he's very accessible uh and and i hope that you'll mention that you uh heard him here on the race podcast thank you so much brian i really appreciate this opportunity thank you so with that i'm going to close uh today's episode with magnus johnson who serves as senior associate vice president of Presidential and University Philanthropy at Virginia Commonwealth University. Thank you, Magnus, and take care, everybody.